All right, we now turn our attention in the study of God's Word to Romans chapter 4. Looking particularly this morning at verses 16 through 22 and drilling down into Paul's explanation of the gospel. At this moment in the text, at this part from verse 16 and following, it, Paul begins to take a turn uh, away from the particular defenses of the details of the gospel to draw out illustrations and implications of the gospel of grace going to move into chapter 5 and talk about the glories of justification and draw out some implications. But right here is a, is a change. Paul has been defending the gospel that he preached, the gospel that he and his fellow companions ministered, the gospel delivered to us that we delivered to others. He has been defending it. And he started in verse Three, indicating that quote from Genesis fifteen six that we again are declared righteous. Abraham was believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There was a declaration of righteousness to Abraham. Out of which, Paul then demonstrated that this was credited to him. It wasn't earned by Abraham. It wasn't something he worked for. It was credited to him. He was reckoned as this. We saw that term, legizomai, that he used many times here in this chapter. We then saw, verses 6 through 8, that this work that was done in Abraham was consistent with the work that he did in David's life and others. This is the model faith. There was nothing different in Abraham's faith than there was in David, which is for us as well. Then we saw the point that this happened before uh, Abraham even received the covenant. It happened before the, prom- the, the law was given to him, so that even uh, the righteousness that was credited to Abraham happened before the law came, so there's no way this could have been given by the law. And then last week we saw just three rapid-fire final arguments that Paul makes against the law. The law cannot receive a promise. The law nullifies a promise. And the law only stirs up wrath. The more you seek to practice the law, you're going to find that you fall short and it's only going to reveal God's righteous judgments. So that he has been saying ultimately then this, the only way that one can be saved is by faith. It's the only way that you're going to receive the righteousness of God. It's the only way that is going to justify uh, or redeem an individual. So now here from verse 16 and following, that's why it starts in verse 16, for this reason it is by faith. In light of all this other evidence, all these other points, It has to be by faith. We have to be saved by faith. To which he then turns the focus and begins to set our focus on an example of true faith, the Abraham himself. And he begins to show the character and the nature of Abraham's faith. Before we even jump into that, I just want to make an observation that Paul certainly would not have attended some liberal university today. Paul wouldn't look at Abraham and be contented in believing, as some scholars would say today, 
that Abraham was simply a myth. David was a myth. These were just mythologies given so as to give people something to hope in or believe in. It's not what, Abraham, what Paul does here. In fact, Paul looks to Abraham as that historical example. An example in which, again, he can anchor our confidence, our faith in something we can look at and see as a model example that we can walk in. He is as was as real as any other person in history. That's why even if you read Matthew's account or Luke's account, you'll see in those accounts the lineages pointing the life of Christ back through Abraham, through David and to Abraham. These are historical examples, and we see this demonstrated here, confidence in the historical example of Abraham. But here particularly now, Paul turns the attention, and if you were just analyzing this text, it seems strange just by a general reading of this text that at the end of verse 16, he makes this statement, who is the father of us all, and then launches into a description of the practice of the faith of Abraham. It's when you're outlining the text, you see a series of statements until he gets to that point, and then all of a sudden he launches it off into these series of subordinate ideas that goes deeper and deeper, expressing the practice of Abraham's faith. And almost, you, almost a sense that you could break off of the paragraph right at the end there and start a whole new paragraph because then Paul is heading off into a whole new idea. And what's that whole new idea? It is the example of Abraham's faith lived out. That's what he's going to draw our attention to here. Let's just read this just to see what Paul stated and set our framework. We'll start in verse 16. It says, For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of him, or a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This is the glorious conclusion 
to Paul's defense to his gospel. And he concludes with this remarkable example of Abraham. All we can do is believe. We can't earn our way to eternal life. We can't keep enough rules to make ourselves pleasing to God. We can't do enough. We can't say enough. All we can do in response to the grace of God and the promises of God is to embrace them by faith, to believe. We believe upon God. We believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. We believe God's promises. And we believe that then it is by that belief we receive the grace of God, and the grace of God delivers us. Faith is necessary. God gives his promises. God gives grace to us. God gives us the grace to cover our transgressions. God gives us righteousness. And we respond to that grace in faith. It has to be this way. Paul indicates it has to be this way in verse 16. It says, for this reason, it is by faith. It is the, in italics in your text. It's there in italics, meaning it, the, it is is reference to righteousness and the giving of righteousness. For this reason, righteousness is by faith. And then the purpose clause. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. Has to come this way to be given to us by grace so that, notice, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. It has to be given by grace so that it can go to all people and it has to be received by faith so that all descendants would be the same. Otherwise, here's the danger. You would have two different ways of salvation. If it's not by faith, if salvation isn't by faith, if salvation is in a different way, then there is two different classes of redeemed people. The Old Testament saints who kept the law, who are part of the heritage, and then the New Testament believer. It has to be, so Paul says here, so that the promise will be guaranteed, now this phrase, to all the descendants. Who are all these descendants? He describes them. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith. His point in this is that salvation has to be received by faith. Otherwise, these descendants would be a mixed group. They're one group. They're the same whether they came from, uh, they were under the law or they were under the faith of Abraham. They're the same. If, again, they came to salvation by grace through faith. It has to be that way. But one more reason that it has to be this way is this. If we're saved in a different way than by faith, then God's promise is nullified and God himself is not keeping his promise. We're saved in a different way. If he was saved by keeping of the law, then God isn't faithful to his promises. And that's the question at hand here is, is God faithful to his promise? We know certainly he is. Then the, answer, then the question raised from that is, what does a 
person who believes in God and God's faithfulness to keep his promise look like? What does it look like to have a faith that, that believes God, that believes God's promises? What does genuine saving faith look like? How is it modeled? And that's what's demonstrated here. We see the model example of Abraham at the end of verse 16, who is the father of us all. Abraham is our example. He is the one that we can look to and see what faith looks like, modeled and lived out. And so what we see in this text, particularly from verses 17 through verse 22, are five expressions of a modeled faith. Five different ways in which his faith can be modeled, emulated. We'll get through three this morning and the final two next week. The first expression is this. Abraham is the model of faith because he embraced God's injunction on his life. Abraham is a model of faith because he embraced God's command, God's injunction. He embraced the, the command of God. Paul has been making this clear from all the way back in verse 3. When he said in Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Quoting Genesis 15 and verse 6. What is that? What do you mean he believed God? Well, to see this, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 and just remind us again of the Abrahamic covenant. Remind you of these little, what happened. Abraham, here, is in Haran with his family. And Genesis 12, 1 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, and here's the command, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I shall show you. Leave this place and go where I will send you. That's the command. <clears throat> then the promises. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and so shall, so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The command, verse 2, or verse 1, go. The result or the blessing of the promises, verses 2 and 3, to which then you see verse 4, the response. So, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. This is the setting then to which Paul is building the case from. Here is the covenant given by God to Abram, the Abrahamic covenant, which he is then affirmed in chapter 15 and verse 6. Now turn back to Romans 4. This Abram, who received from God the injunction, the command, the imposition, received that imposition, that command from God to leave his homeland and to go out. This Abram, is, who is the father of us all, as verse 17 then says, it's in the presence of him whom he believed. It's that phrase that is rather interesting. 
what is happening here, this phrase, in the presence of him who he believed. It's translated different ways. If you have the New American, there it says, in, or yeah, New American Standard, in the sight of him. The ESV says, in the presence of the God. Uh, King James says, before him whom he believed. Paul is emphatically saying here this. It's in the sight of, in the very presence of. I would say like this if I were to translate it. It would be, before God, Abraham believed in the one who raised the dead and created out of nothing. Or who is able to raise the dead and create out of nothing. Say it, ultimately, what is Paul demonstrating here is Abraham lived out his response before God. He knew he was operating in the presence of God. He knew he was operating as under God's watchful eye. He was wa- operating in the sight of God. So what the scriptures indicate. Psalm 139, for example, verses 7 through 10 says this, Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. Solomon is indicating I cannot run from the presence of God. I can't hide from it at all. He is everywhere. Jeremiah 23, verse 24 says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? I see all, he says. There are no hiding places from me. Psalm 32, verse 8 I will instruct you and teach you in the ways which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Abraham responded to the injunction of God, the very command given to him. And Paul says this, in God's very sight. He lived in such a way that he was under the watchful gaze of God. God was watching him in all these things. Abraham acted on the injunction to go in response to God's self-disclosure. God spoke to Abram. God directed him. God communicated to him and had ultimately revealed himself to him. We know uh, from this text what it is that Abraham believed in. The, The end of verse 17 describes it who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. This is what Abraham believed in. He believed in the God who could do the impossible, who gives life, and the one who is able to create out of nothing. He had this belief. This was driving him. God had imposed upon Abraham the command to leave, to leave his father's land. He imposed upon Abram 
the command and injunction to abandon all that was familiar to him, all that was safe and secure, to leave that and to follow after the command of God, which came with the promises, the promises of blessing, the promises of reward. And Abraham's first response then, first expression that made his faith great is that he responded to that injunction. He didn't uh, cast it off, ignore it. He responded to it. As, again, particularly he responded because he knew this character of his God. And this is what works for us as well. God imposes upon us. Faith is a command. We are to believe. We are to believe, we are to respond to God's injunction, God's command, we are to believe. And when God commands, he commands and calls us out. He calls us out of darkness into his light. He calls us out of this world into his work. He calls us from death into life. He calls us from sin into holiness. He calls us from godlessness to godliness. He imposes upon our life. And Abraham lived under that imposition in the sight of God, and he lived believing in God, believing in the character of God, who was able to give life out of nothing, give life to that which was dead, and to create something that is out of things that are not seen. It's literally how the text reads there at the end of verse 17. There he is... uh, or verse uh, yeah, 17, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist. Literally how he reads, Abraham believed this. Now, think about this for a moment. Place yourself in Abraham's shoes. You're in Haran, enjoying your father's homeland. You are enjoying the comforts of success that you have received over the years from your father's obedience. You are enjoying the protection of that homeland, the flocks that you had, the nice little village home. Your family has all grown up around there. And then the voice of God comes and says, Abraham, go. You and your family go to the land of which I will show you. How do you respond to that voice? For Abraham, it was the confidence that God is and the power of God that led him to respond to that injunction and to move on. That was the example. That Abraham obeyed the voice of God in the sight of God. He didn't say, you know, um, I hear your voice, I hear what you're saying to me, Um, I'll send someone else to do this. Or did I get this right? It was the message which he received that he responded to. And as again, verse 4 of Genesis 12 indicates, he went, he and his family with him. So that Abraham then is the model example for us because he lived his life in the presence of God by implication responding to the injunctions of God. But it leads us to the second expression of his great faith. 
and this is in verse 18, he is the model of faith because against all odds, he believed in God. He is the model of faith because against all the odds, he believed God. God can do the things that are impossible. God can do the things that are difficult. God, as we saw at the end of verse 17, he can do the difficult things. He can give life to that which is dead. I guarantee you, if there was somebody else who could do that today, they would be a very rich person. Lining up, many would be lining up for that. God can give life to that which is dead, and he can, as the end of verse 17, he can create that which did not exist. He can bring into existence. I mean, talk about an end to supply chain worries. God can create all that he needs out of nothing. That's true power. That's limitless power. There's no supply shortages for God. He can accomplish everything. So that in Abraham's mind, there is a belief in the greatness of God despite the seemingly impossible circumstance and situation that he was facing. That's how Paul sets up the idea in verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed. To understand, again, what Abraham is facing, we just jump down to verse 19. Paul explains it more. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. The very situation that he was facing at this moment is he was looking at the impossible odds of him bearing, producing a child at the age of 99. And that Sarah, his wife, at the same age would be bearing a child to him. This is, for him, impossible. That phrase, in hope against hope, a curious kind of statement, seems even contradictory, doesn't it? Douglas Moo says it like this, this is a paradoxical description of Abraham's faith. It certainly doesn't seem to make sense. You mean, but, most, but uh, almost all translations translate it this way, who, Romans, you know, King James Version, who against hope believed in hope. Or the New American Bible, he believed a hope against or hoping against hope. The Net Bible, against hope, Abraham believed in hope. The idea is just seemingly confusing. But I think it is an appropriate translation of the preposition para here. Let me just show you, Paul does this a couple other times in this. Turn over to chapter 1 and verse 26. In the same book here, Paul Translated the same way, against is uh, the idea of the preposition. We find it uh, contextually. Romans one twenty six. By the way, this isn't the normal use of the translation. The normal translation would be alongside of. So just a normal translation of the word para would be alongside of. 
But there are times where the context would indicate they would mean against. Here's an example. Romans 1 and verse 26 says this. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is, and then it's translated, unnatural. But literally in the text, it is para fusen. It is against nature. That's what he's saying. They exchanged that which is then against nature. Be translated then para, against. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. He does the same thing here in Romans chapter 11 in verse 24. In Romans eleven twenty-four, he's speaking about the grafting in of branches and he's grafting in the Gentiles into the, to the olive tree. And it says in verse 24, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted, notice, Contrary to nature, that is the same phrase, para fusen, contrary to what is natural against what is of nature. Again, the context demonstrates that something is against, that para would be translated as against. Now, turn back to Romans 4. Let me just show you what is happening here. And I think it's why all the translations take this phrase as Against hope, he hoped. In hope against hope. What is happening here is then the impossibility of Abraham's situation. Abraham is again 99 years old. He is at the point where the odds are impossible and he is still trusting God in this moment. So that I think the best way to translate this is exactly as the early church father did, Chrysostom. He translated it in this way. Against man's hope in hope, which is God's hope. The contrasting statement of man's hopefulness and God's hopefulness, that man is against all of man's hope, but resting in God's hope. I think that's the idea here becomes very clear in the situation. There is, from the earthly standpoint of Abraham, absolutely no reason to believe. That's against hope, against any idea of man. But for God, there is every reason to believe, because God can create life out of nothing and even you know, give life to that which is dead and create out of nothing. I mean, again, imagine this, just the whole scenario. God gave the command to Abram when he was 75 years old. He didn't give the command to Abram when Abram was 18 years old. When Abraham was eight, if you, Abraham was 18 and he received the command, well, he waited 25 years, he's now 43 it's not a big deal that the command hasn't come yet. The fulfillment of the command hasn't come yet. The promise hasn't been received. But when you receive the promise at 75 and now you're 99 and it still hasn't yet been fulfilled, well, now this is looking a little impossible. I mean, even as the text indicates, and so 
Someone called me out on it in the first hour when he talked about the deadness of Sarah's womb, saying, you better be careful the second hour talking about deadness at 99 years old. But the point is that this was an impossible situation from a human standpoint. I mean, there's nothing that one would look at and Abraham saying, yeah, I'm spry at this age and ready to have a child and God is going to deliver. No, it's against all man's hope. And I think that was God's intent. That's why he gave the promise to Abraham at 75 and not at 18. It's to demonstrate to Abraham, this isn't about you, about your abilities, but about me and my abilities. It's about what I will accomplish, even against what would be natural to you. And what you would think is possible. I will demonstrate the greatness of my work, even when, for you, it seems to be impossible to be accomplished. This is the second aspect of the greatness of Abraham's faith, that it believed against all earthly odds, persevered even when it seemed to be hopeless, when there was nothing earthly to rest in, nothing earthly to have confidence in, when there's nothing in man's wisdom or understanding to anchor one's confidence in, he was still confident in God, he believed. Hope against hope. But one more little detail. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but one little detail. Notice what what he anchored it in here, yeah, verse 18. You give a promise at the end so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. And then he quotes Genesis 17.5 here. So shall your descendants be. He had a persevering faith. He had a... a, a, a a faith that believed against all odds, that was resting in the promises of God. He wasn't thrown off, kept anchoring himself in God's promises. Leads us to the third characteristic of faith. Abraham is the model of faith because he embraced the apparent impossibility of fulfillment, notice this phrase, without wavering. Or to say differently, he persevered in a faith that overcame all the difficult odds. That's what verse 19 indicates for us there. Without becoming weak in faith. And then this phrase, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. To say something like this, he looked realistically at the circumstances and didn't grow weak. Yeah, he was aware how old he was. He was aware of the state of his body at that time. I used to think about how I'd realize I was getting older. And I would say to my family, I know I'm getting older because I'm making more and more involuntary noises. You know? I'm sitting down, I made a noise, like, where did that noise come from? You get up, where did that come from? I know I'm getting older because things are happening to me that I am not planning. And you get that even in regards to injuries and illnesses. 
All of a sudden, you know you're getting older because those things that you handled as a young child are now coming back demanding surgery or demanding medications. Abraham was at that very state where, as the text indicates, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. He knew he was old. And there was no doubt in his mind, I am old, my wife is old, and how is this promise going to be fulfilled? And yet, in contemplating the reality of the circumstances, the text says, he was not weak in faith. He wasn't wavering. What's weakness in faith? Turn over to Romans chapter 8. You see the same word. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Weakness is brought out here. Romans 8 and verse 3 says this. For what the law could not do, and then this phrase, weak as it was through the flesh. Weakness there would be incapable. It wouldn't believe. Is it impossible to accomplish? Turn over to Romans 14. The word weakness is used again. Romans 14, 1 and 2. It says, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Vegetarians, yeah. You're just... <laughs> but the point in this particular context is that the person whose conscience was bound up that he couldn't eat meat that was bought from the temple because he felt he was violating the commands of God was weak. He was unable to eat what was freely given to him. Weakness is one who is doubting. Turn back to Romans 4. Weak then is to doubt is to not have strength, to not be able to accomplish, to not be able to do. Here then, he says, without becoming doubting, without becoming weak and unable to operate in faith. He was strong, persevered. Abraham had a persevering faith that continued to endure even in the face of great difficulty. I think even that event with Hagar Certainly, you know, in response, not exactly his best move, but he wasn't doubting God's ability. He just doubted whether it was going to come through Sarah, but he wasn't doubting the God's work. He was, as again, Paul graciously indicates of Abraham, he was, was not weak in faith though he was considering the limitations. But there's something else that I want you to see. And it, it started to come out at the end of verse 18, and, and certainly Paul just quotes it many times. Uh, he quotes the promise in verse 17. He's a father of many nations have I made you. That's the promise. Verse 18, he quotes the promise again. So shall your descendants be. These were the promises given to Abraham. You will be blessed. You will be made a great nation. You will be given descendants. The thing I want you to see is this, that there was an object of faith that Abraham was focused on. It was the promises of God. 
When I give the phrase and make the statement, the example of Abraham's faith is that he believed in, uh, against all odds. Many stop right there and think, well, the object of my faith is I should just have a big faith, a grand faith, a faith that believes in the impossible, a faith that, uh, that uh, has uh, big aspirations. And if you have a small faith, you don't believe in big things, well, that's the problem. You know, they say things like this, well, just have faith that God will make you rich, or have faith that God will heal you, or have faith that he'll give you a good job or material blessings, as if the object of the faith are the great things we want. That's not the object. The object of faith for us is God and his promises. That's the object of faith. God himself, his character, that's what the end of verse 17 indicates to us. The God who was able to give life to the dead and was able to create out of nothing something. And the promises that he has given, promises in this case to bless Abraham, to make him a father of many nations, to make his descendants numerous, you see, the many struggle in faith because they think, I just need to have faith in anything. So, no, that's not what we're calling to saving faith. Saving faith is in the object, God himself, and in his promises. That's what we were anchored in. And I think that's exactly what, uh, in verse 19, one says there, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. He did not doubt the promise, even in light of the seeming impossibility of the situation. The promise is true. He's going to make me a descendant, or make me have many descendants. In Abraham's mind, he is confident God is going to do this. Even in light of the reality, he was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. Listen, this is how we operate. We operate in this kind of faith. You and I. I've never seen someone raised from the dead, but I believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that every person who ever lived will be raised. Whether those in faith are raised unto eternal life, are those who were, did not believe will raised for the second judgment or the second death. I've never seen God face to face, nor have I ever heard his voice, but I know that he is and believe that he is. I've never seen the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, never heard his voice, and yet I call him Lord and Savior I wasn't there when God created the heavens and the earth, and yet I look around and believe that he's created all that is in existence. And I believe whatever telescopes we send into the universe to look to the edges of the universe are only going to see his creative work. I've never seen heaven, but I believe that God dwells there with his holy angels, and he has that place which is planned for the future we believe all these things because God himself has revealed them to us. Yeah, they, to the natural man, seem impossible. Yes, to the natural man, seem improbable. But these are the things, the objects 
that God has revealed. He's revealed himself and he has revealed his promises. And many times we lose faith because we think to some degree our problem is too big. And here, verse 19 indicates Abraham persevered in the expression of his faith. He didn't grow weak in it, even though he contemplated the difficulty. There was one who had the proper focus of the object of faith. It was in God and in God's promises. So three reasons thus far we've seen for the example of Abraham's faith. Abraham was a model example because he responded to the commands of God and believed in the power of God to accomplish anything. And Abraham was a model example of faith because he believed even against all earthly odds. And that Abraham is a model of our faith because he embraced the apparent impossibility of fulfillment without wavering. Didn't doubt didn't doubt God's power, God's character, or God's promises. That is a persevering faith, a growing faith. It doesn't doubt God's character, promises, or purposes. And the question would be, are you following in that faith? The faith of Abraham? Are you following in the kind of faith that grows, that has confidence in the proper object, in God himself, and in God's promises? Are you trying to build a faith that basically looks like your desires wrapped up in righteous garb? Are you doubting against all, or are you believing against all earthly odds, his promises? Or does your faith waver as you don't see how God could possibly do something? The kind of faith God calls us to is the kind of faith that is anchored in him and anchored in what he has said. Those are the first three aspects of saving faith. We'll see the final two next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this great example in Abraham. Indeed, when we grow weary, we can see this great expression of faith. We seem to look at the situation and think this is impossible. There's no way that this could turn out We simply just need to look at the example of Abraham before us. And indeed, we don't want to set our hope on our desires, our passions and wants. We want to set our belief upon your promises, what you have declared you would accomplish. So we want the kind of faith that responds rightly to your commands, and we want the kind of faith that endures even when it's difficult, and we want the kind of faith that that uh, overcomes natural limitations because it is the supernatural work in our heart and life. So direct us through your word to look to your promises. And as we believe upon these things, we look forward to seeing the joy that will be produced within us as, as we walk in a growing faith. Thank you for the examples of Abraham and for the fellow examples of our brothers and sisters around us who encourage us. May we continue to lift up one another and encourage one another to persevere in this faith. 
And for those who do not know you and who've lived in unbelief or in a form of godliness that they seek to manage, may they see the impossibility of their own strength and turn to you and recognize the incomprehensible power that you demonstrate and the riches of the mercy which you lavish upon your people. And may they find peace in you. Thank you for this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.